children are making their way out. Rise up and build. I love Nehemiah. Okay, our scripture reading this morning is from Nehemiah. It's chapter 6, verses 15 through 19, and then chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah were coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshalan, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some, at, some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for a registration by families. I found the genealogical records of those who had been the first to return. Let's pray. Lord God, you send us your word in so many different ways, and in this through Nehemiah. Lord, I ask that you just bless Kyle as he comes to give you his, your word. Um, Lord, just speak through him and help that pierce our hearts, Lord, and plant seed that grows fruit. Lord, thank you so much for our pastor. Thank you for his leading and his guiding us in this and all things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. Thank you so much. So good to see everybody this morning. There was um, an announcement, I think, that I neglected to put in uh, the program this week. So um, it's, it's uh, basically our potluck is going to be next week, next Sunday, right? Is that right? Next week. And everyone's welcome. Um, right after the potluck, we're having a members meeting. We're going to be voting on some important things. So I hope that as many people can come, um, many member, members of our church really need you there so that we can, we can vote. Um, but yeah, so just try to come out. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope that you can all be there and enjoy the food. We always have a really good time. So it's so good to be here, and I, I also want to encourage you. Um, this year, we're kind of um, looking at Easter a little bit differently um, than last year. Last year, there was a big push, and so we sent out all these mailers and whatnot. And um, one thing that we're trying to do this year is, is emphasize to you all just the importance of bringing somebody. Um, we're kind of a new church, and... You know, big days, I guess church-wise, big days, Christmas Eve, Easter, a lot of people go to the churches that they know about. 
Um, they're not really picking this one because we're kind of the new cult church that no one knows who are they. Are they handling snakes in there? What's going on in there? So they're going to the staple churches, their mom's churches. You know, so we're still going to send out in, in um, um, different ways of communicating to the community that we're having a special service. But it's really on you, though. Um, that's the best way to get people who don't know Jesus Christ um, to come to, to our Easter service this early in our life as a church. So we don't have them yet, but next week we're going to have little invitations. But just write a note on your notebook or on your hand or on your forehead, whatever works for you, to, to remember, write down a name. Write down somebody's name, commit to pray for them, and make sure that you ask them. Invite them to breakfast or lunch afterwards to your home. And normally, you know, we all have um, lunch at our homes on Easter, usually with our family, but a great way to be hospitable to people is to invite them to your home. You know, it's Easter, so they might have somewhere else to go, but, but just, um, just labor, write a name down, try to invite someone to church here, and just pray for them. Um, pray that, um, that they come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. So I just wanted to encourage you all to try to do that, just to make an effort um, to think of who you might invite, one or two people, and um, it's gonna, hopefully we'll have a really great service. And just be praying for that service, because people are apt to go to church on Easter Sunday. Um, so, um, and, if, and if they can't for some reason, bring them to the Good Friday service. You know, so um, something like that. You know, invite them to both. I'm not trying to just single out um, Easter Sunday, but, but yeah, so we're, we're going to have a really great time to celebrate and just be praying, church. Be praying consistently, faithfully for this, and hopefully we see people come out and just come to know Jesus in a new way. Amen. So we'll turn now to, to look at our, our text in Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7. We're actually about the midway point through the book of Nehemiah. There's, there's I think, 13 or 14 chapters in Nehemiah. And we're about halfway done. And it's been interesting um, to go through the book with you. I've never taught through Nehemiah. I've read it several times, but um, I've never taught through it before. And I've just been having so much fun considering um, the magnificent work of not only this person, Nehemiah, but the people of Israel, and also the faithfulness of God that you see all throughout the book so far. I remember clearly um, when I was only eight years old. You guys remember when you were eight? long time ago now for some of us. But I remember clearly when I was eight years old. When I was eight, it's always easy to remember my birthday because I was born on an even year, 1980. So I was eight years old. It was 1988. And my family always watched the Olympics. Um, it's a very common thing, I think, in the United States. We're always kind of glued to the TV during the Olympics. We all get that flutter in our heart when we hear Bob Costa's voice and, you know, and the, the music to the Olympics comes on and we just get so excited. Um, but I remember clearly... Um, even being so young in 1988, I was only eight years old, but I remember clearly a tragic accident. It was in Seoul, Korea, and it was um, when Greg Louganis hit his head. Do you remember this? On the diving board. Um, just, uh, just shot, everyone was shocked. He was considered the greatest diver in the world at the time, and actually he was 30 years old in 1988, so he was old for, for an Olympic athlete. So at the age of 30, he was attempting a dive that he basically invented, and others, every, everyone modeled his style of diving afterwards. It was the three-and-a-half reverse somersault tuck, 33 feet in the air. That's not the one he hit his head on, but incredibly difficult and challenging for even the best of divers. A dive that was so difficult, it actually killed a Soviet diver in 1983 when he struck his head on the platform. So now Luganus, being the oldest athlete in the diving competition, he shockingly hits his head. It's a lower dive. It's on a springboard. He ends up being okay. But the air left the room as the people watched in horror. What's going to happen to Luganus? He would suffer basically minor injuries, but it seemed likely 
that this accident would just put him out of the competition, point-wise and even just his own personal morale. But he stuck through it. And if you remember, he continued and he made it to the finals. He pulled through. Just incredible courage and athleticism and determination. His last dive would be the very same dive that killed the Soviet after he had just hit his own head in another dive. One writer comments, back arched, knees flexed, he launched himself high into the air, curled into a tight ball, stung, uh, spun back into the crystal blue water 33 feet below. Sensational, perfect dive, and he won the gold. Amazing. One of the most decorated athletes in Olympic diving history is Greg Louganis. <clears throat> he, he's a model of perseverance and accomplishing what is seemingly impossible. And the reason why so many Christians, I think, run to the book of Nehemiah is because he too exemplifies this sort of determination in accomplishing what seems to be impossible tasks. So the wall, it says in verse 15, was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Less than two months. A two and a half mile wall around the city was complete. From August to September, that's what that Elul means, it's a month we don't really understand it, but in our terms, in our way of speaking, from August to September, they finished the job. A two and a half mile wall, less than two months. Just remember the great task that he had ahead of himself. He had to convince the king, the most powerful man in the world in Persia, to reverse an earlier policy that he made forbidding the building of the wall. Nehemiah had to convince the king to reverse that law, that decree. He had to devise a construction plan and recruit a demotivated and discouraged workforce, also a depleted workforce. He was opposed by powerful leaders and governors. He was ridiculed. Do you remember all this? He was lied to. He was manipulated. He was threatened with his life, and he was slandered. But in 52 days, the wall was done. He persevered, and the wall was done. There's a little principle, I think, that we, we have to mention here before we continue with the re rest of our sermon. It's that we should never underestimate what God can do through us. The seemingly impossible things of life can be done. They can be done. Jim, Jim Cimbala uh, is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. And the, the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle choir sings there. But he popularly says, what God can do prayer can do. What God can do, prayer can do. It's kind of a, a line that's just been, ever since he said it, it's been rolling around in my head for weeks. What God can do, prayer can do. And Nehemiah knew this. When God's people see what God wants, do you see what God wants in your life, in the lives of people, in his world? Can you see that? Do you have a vision of it? Do you think about it? Because that's how Nehemiah begins, remember? He heard the report of the broken down walls and he wept. So he wanted what God, God wanted. He wanted a healthy local church. That's basically what he wanted. But when God's people see what God desires and they repent and they call out to him for help, heaven opens up and, pot, and power flies down. It's just the way it works, friends. And you say, I'm too far gone, I've drifted too far from Christ, it's not too late, friends. 
Whoever confesses their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and your best days are ahead. Period. James Hamilton said, often things, he's a writer, a commentator, often things don't happen simply because people don't start doing them. (laughs) Oftentimes, things don't happen simply because we just don't start doing them. We don't believe. And if we do start doing them, they don't happen because we don't persevere in them. We don't continue when it gets difficult. And don't miss this also in verse 16. It makes it clear that the task was accomplished by God. And Nehemiah says this over and over throughout his book. It's the theme, basically, of Nehemiah. You remember in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, God's hand was on him. When he was interacting with different leaders that he needed to influence. God put the vision in his heart in chapter 2, verse 12. God would make them prosper in chapter 2, verse 20. This is his anthem all throughout the book. God frustrated the plans of the enemy in chapter 4, verse 15. And in chapter 4, verse 20, God would fight for them. Friends, when God puts his kingdom vision in your heart, he will fight for you. And you can do the seeming impossible. That's the story of Scripture. That's the overwhelming promise that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that is doing things that only God can do. We want to live lives that are transformed in such a way that only God could have done it. How is it possible for sinners to repent of their sin? For people to pursue their holy affection with Jesus Christ more than maybe simple pleasures of life. We don't want to be able to explain things as the product of our ordinary effort. I hope this church and our lives can be explained, can't be just explained away by financial strategy or administrative prowess or we were really smart so we figured it out. I want the transforming power, the, the nations around us to say, what God is this? You see? This is what the story of Nehemiah was. How does that church love so faithfully, forgive each other consistently, sacrifice so radically, live so differently, love each other so patiently? Because, remember, quote, this work had been done with the help of God. It has to be so fantastic, so miraculous, that unbelieving people know that there is a God in Israel. You see? And there is a God in our church. And we have his power. Now you might expect the story of Nehemiah to end with that simple line, and the walls were complete. Did you see that? Did you hear it? Okay, it seems as if that was the theme. There was this great task. The walls were broken. It's done. But the story goes on for seven more chapters. And this is simply because the book of Nehemiah is not simply about a building project, about walls getting erected. It's not about a challenging building project or political victories and maneuvering. It is about the heart of God's people. There is a reason why he wants God's people in Jerusalem. And it's not simply to have a nation. It's not simply to be economically strong in the area at the time. It's about the heart of God's people. And Nehemiah hints about this in verse 4, if you remember this verse. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. So they made this big city, they built the walls, but no one's there. 
No one's in it. It's not about a city. It's not about a wall, about walls, or even a, a political nation. This was about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, and his bride collected to worship him. That wasn't happening in Jerusalem. This was not about a nation. This was not about a city. This was about the worship of Yahweh and the hearts of God's people directed in worship to him. You see this? That's what it's about. This is about, therefore, you and me, friend. This is about our hearts. Because we might have walls and we might gather in a church, but our hearts are far from God. And they're not, so the metaphorical spiritual walls are still broken down. So it's about you and me, just as it is about any, anyone else in, in all of church history. It's not about having space with seats and room. It's, it's about who will occupy those seats. Who God will call out from darkness into light to know him. See? And that's where Nehemiah's work is our work. We're not interested in walls or chairs. We're interested in people. God's people coming out of darkness to light because we've shared the gospel with them. Amen? That's where his work is our work. Nehemiah was not done when the walls were finished. He had only just begun. And this chapter shows us the convictions that drove this man as a spiritual leader. And they, these convictions did two things. It, it basically produced an exodus of people from all over the, uh, the area to occupy Jerusalem and also to continue on a healthy local church. These convictions are what, what motivated these people to return to the city, but also what kept them healthy as the people of God. So let's look at these convictions. There are six of them. Okay, six convictions that really motivated these people to return to Jerusalem and to live together as a worshiping community. The conviction, firstly, number one, the conviction of purpose. Nehemiah had the conviction of purpose. When the wall was done, Nehemiah begins to appoint leaders to certain duties. This is kind of important. You might have missed this in, in our reading of it. We might expect... A city is finished. There's not many people in it. So if we're going to start giving people positions, what are you thinking of right away? Well, I'm thinking of chief of police, mayor, lieutenant governor. I'm thinking of things like that. You know, where's the bank going to go? This thing needs to run on all cylinders. If it's going to work economically and people are going to have peace. But he doesn't do this. Nehemiah appoints three different people First, he does appoint people for protection later, but the first people he appoints are gatekeepers, musicians, and Levites. The first thing on his mind when the, when the wall is done and the city is ready to be filled is where are the gatekeepers, musicians, and Levites? And you say, well, that's kind of foreign language to me, so let me explain to you what these things mean and why they're significant. He appoints musicians. Does anyone think that's a little bit silly? When the city is done, all this work has been done, he's interested in who might be playing the tuba at the gate. It seems a little ridiculous. Why is he concerned about this? And let alone, what is a, gate, what is a gatekeeper and who are the Levites? He appoints musicians. What's going on here? I'm just not sure I'd do this if I was finished bu building a city. You know, in my Sim City that I play on, on my video game, I'm not looking for Levites. I'm looking for cops. By appointing gatekeepers, Nehemiah showed the priority of a holy community. 
Gatekeepers did guard cities from physical harm, but gatekeepers in Jerusalem were specifically entrusted with guarding the holy purity of the people inside. And how do we know this? In chapter 13 of Nehemiah, verse 22, it reads, I commanded the Levites to purify themselves, go, go down and guard the gates, gatekeepers, in order, why? To keep marauders away, to keep criminals away, to keep invading armies away? No, to keep the Sabbath day holy. He was interested in keeping the Sabbath day holy. Now, if you're not a Christian, you haven't read the Bible much, that might seem, you might not know what that means. But basically, the Sabbath day is a day to worship God exclusively. And if you're not a Christian, you're working on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. So he's saying you've got to keep people out that aren't Jewish that are going to come in here and try to sell us stuff. We are going to keep the Sabbath day holy. He is specifically interested in the holiness of his people, you see? <clears throat> so they guarded the virtue of the people. By appointing singers, Nehemiah showed the priority of a worshiping community. They didn't just simply play tambourines so that they could all dance and have fun. This wasn't a party. By appointing singers or musicians, Nehemiah showed the priority of a worshiping community. These singers were to lead the people of God in the adoration of the Lord. God had done, had done something miraculous for them, and they were called to worship him as a consequence. Isn't that fantastic, friends? And likewise, are we called to the same? Can't we see in our own lives the need for gatekeepers and singers and Levites to be led in the adoration of the Lord? The city wasn't simply built as a place for safety or economy or community. And friends, neither are our lives simply here just so that we can survive them with relative peace and prosperity. We were created to worship God. And there is your greatest joy found. The collection of God's people whose highest aim is to laud and applaud their creator through Christ. But there's more to faith than simply singing. By appointing Levites, Nehemiah showed the priority of a biblically educated community that would direct the song of the people to sing what was true about God and not false about God. See? Raymond Brown said that if the heart is to be inspired in worship, the mind must be informed. Because you know you could worship a God that isn't even there and isn't even real. The Levites were appointed as Israel's teacher. teachers. Specifically, the Levites had this function in the nation of Israel. Brown continues that faith, he says, faith is only grounded... In spiritual certainties. That's how we develop our faith, by knowing the word of God, in other words. Our faith is only strong and grounded and growing through spiritual certainties. Pastors, these Levites and pastors now in the church today, function to expose those great unchanging words from God to you all and to ourselves. So if we can reflect on Nehemiah's trouble in chapter 1, considering these three offices that he appoints, the gatekeepers, the Levites, and the singers, let's reflect back onto chapter 1 when it talked about the city lying in ruins. What was his chief concern? What does this point to? The appointment of these officers points to not that he was interested in, a, in an economically functioning well city, he was interested in, the whole, interested in the heart and the holiness of the people that lived there. That's why he was doing it. 
So what's clear is that Nehemiah ultimately was concerned about the name and fame of God and the spiritual life of his people. The real ruin was not the walls. It was the hearts. So when Nehemiah finishes the walls, he starts a church. He builds a worshiping community. He had the conviction of purpose. Everything else in his life His work, his family, his play, all filtered through the purpose of worshiping God. You see? Secondly, he had the conviction of character. The conviction of purpose, the conviction of character. He says in verse 2, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani along with Hananiah because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most. The greatest mistake a leader can make is to appoint people of low character. It's the greatest mistake we can make. And I don't believe that that's true just in the church. I believe that's true everywhere. Some say that good leaders possess the three C's of good leadership. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but character, competence, and compassion. That's kind of like a well-rounded leader. They have character. They have con- they're able to do what they, they... They're competent, so they're able to do what they can do. But they're also compassionate. So, in other words, they care about people. They're not just using people. Character, competence, compassion. But, and, and I think that's a good description of a good leader. But it appears more and more in the world that we, that we live in that we prefer more of a Machiavellian type of leader. In other words, character really doesn't matter all that much to us just as long as the leader produces. Virtue is sort of like an antiquated misnomer, an anachronism. It's something of the past that isn't relevant to us today. If we're richer, if we're more prosperous, if we're more free, then it doesn't really matter how we got there or how virtuous our leaders were because we are now more prosperous. See? But this wasn't Nehemiah this wasn't Nehemiah's selection process, the most productive. Who did, who did Nehemiah groom? Who did he appoint to govern the city? Man of integrity who feared God more than most. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that these men were also competent leaders, okay? But their competence was not named as the first priority. What was named as the first priority was their fear of Yahweh, their fear of the Lord. Godliness was the first priority. Then I'm sure they had discussions of competence. And this, friends, shouldn't be any different in the church today. It shouldn't be any different in the church today. When we turn to the pastoral letters in the New Testament, those are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. But when we turn to them, it discusses much about the qualifications of a church leader. And every single qualification that you read is a character issue, except for one, and that is the ability to teach. That's the only competency issue named in Timothy and Titus. Isn't that incredible? That tells me that in the selection of leaders in a church, we should be more interested in how they live their lives, the quality of their heart, their fitness as a husband and dad. You see? Their love for Jesus Christ than whether or not that they can balance a checkbook or make cool ads on Facebook. But so often, because, you know, we see our churches dying, they're in trouble, we're afraid that our church is going to die, so we start getting competent people, people that we think can fix the problem through some kind of business savvy, and we neglect areas of character, and that ultimately is what kills a church. Nehemiah 
had the conviction of character. But number three, he had the conviction of relocation. And I love this one. I think this is my favorite one. Recall verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been built. Okay? Nehemiah had the incredible task of now that the, the city was done, to go out into the surrounding towns of Jerusalem and convince people to move, to sell their homes, and to move to Jerusalem. It seems to me that that task was probably harder than building the walls itself. Don't you think? God's kingdom is not simply about the structure that houses it. It's about the people themselves. God's people need to gather How many church buildings all across the landscape of New England are just empty? God's people need to gather in covenant community to worship God. We need to relocate. We need to gather. Since God in this context promised that Jerusalem in particular would house the people of God and bring forth the Messiah, they needed people in it. You see, that was kind of a big deal. And that required, um, upon the completion of the walls, for many families to uproot themselves from all over the, the, the area and move into Jerusalem. If you read chapter 7 in its entirety, we only read a little bit of it, um, but if you read the whole thing in its entirety, most of it is a genealogy. Did you, re- did you recall that the, the very last verse, it says that, that Nehemiah found a genealogy. It's basically a very long list of names and families. Now why, it's the, same, it's the same exact list, by the way, that's in Ezra. He found that list, and he starts reading it. Why does he do this? Well, basically, because Nehemiah has this list to now begin to call on people, call them up, cold call them, and say, hey, you need to move to Jerusalem. <laughs> Good luck. You can see this, right, as I said before, this, is, this is, must have been a harder task than just building the walls. The, the walls really just required a temporary workforce. Just come with me, build the walls, then you're done, go home. Relocation meant a permanent sacrifice, a life change. He expected them to uproot themselves from familiar surroundings, from neighbors, from friends, from families, from the nice school system, right? And enter into an unfamiliar, uninhabited, hostile location where they really wouldn't know what the future held for them unless they believed Yahweh. You see, isn't that the challenge for all of us in our relocating of our lives? Do we really believe God? That God is in control, that God is with us, and that God wants us and has called us to do this great task? Moving to Jerusalem was probably the single greatest act of sacrifice any of these folks had to make. It was not a thriving community. It was a non-existent city. But they could see the need. They saw the vision. They understood the word of God. They saw the needs for God's people to relocate to a place that needed the gospel. And friends, isn't that why we're in Warren? Because we live in, in, a, in, a, in a town, and not only a town, a region that has largely forgotten the gospel. And we are not here just, just simply to enjoy each other's company or even to worship Jesus together. That is primarily why we're here, but we're also here so that we can send that worship to our neighbors and friends. To remind them that God is great, that he is good. The genealogy, by the way, isn't just a recruiting tool. It wasn't just like a phone book 
of all the, the Jews that lived in the area, that he would just start calling and asking them if they could come and move. It also served as a historical record. This genealogy was a recording of all the families that had done exactly the same thing that he's about to ask their, their sons and daughters to do. It were their moms and dads that had moved out of exile from, from Persia and Babylon back to Israel. So these are people, these are families that had taken on the task of sacrifice and relocation, you see? So this isn't just a list of names to get people to come. This is a motivating tool. Your mom and your dad did the same thing. You remember this? It was, they were monuments and so of, of people who had said yes to God at all costs. Of people who had taken their lives from a familiar surrounding with relative prosperity to go to a place that they wouldn't know what was going to happen for the sole purpose of worshiping Christ and bringing him to people who don't know him. That's what they were doing. In surrounding us, friends, almost every single day, did you know this, is a testament to the gospel-centered missionaries that came to New England to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that lived here. Every day we drive by those monuments in our cars that erected to the history of faithful Christians that worshiped Christ and lived on mission. Surrounding us daily is a testament to God-centered missionaries who relocated, moved to these Americas before they were even the United States, away from the amenities of Britain and other places to make the gospel known. From Providence to Swansea to Warren, all, all across these towns, you can see monuments of courage erected in the forms of church buildings that some of them are now 300 years old. And they should remind us of who our fathers were and what they did. They did not live passively. They did not live wickedly. They lived to make Christ known. And they look at us every time we drive down the street. And friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have to be inspired to the same again. To remember our fathers, that genealogy, that long list of people, they're in our blood and friends, let's be reminded of who they were and live like this again. They relocated for the cause of Christ, the health of the church, and the lost soul. And such is the cause, the call to all of us. Now some, some, some of you actually have moved to Warren. You live around here for this purpose. But even if you don't move from one house to another, we all have to relocate our lives in some way. Did you know this? Let me explain to you what I mean by this. To relocate is to decide you're going to live, you used to live here, now you're going to live there, right? You used to do this on this day, now you're going to do th this other thing on that day. See what I mean? You're changing your lives because you have gospel priorities. And we all need to do this in one way or the other. To be a meaningful member of any local church requires that we do this, that we make choices to prioritize fellowship with each other and mission to the world. So I'm going to work on these days on not, and not that day. I'm going to have these nights of week for my family and these nights of week for maybe lost people. You see what I mean? Or fellowship. You're making a decision to relocate your time to sacrifice this activity because you want to do this. Jerusalem Community Church had a lot of space, but no people. 
And she needed God's people present. She needed a worshiping community present, all in. And so does this church. So does every local church. Because, because first of all, we need it for our own spiritual growth in life. But our neighbors need it too. Our neighbors need it because they need Christ. Fourthly, he had the conviction of prayer. I, I don't know, it's very difficult to even preach one sermon from any text in Nehemiah without talking about prayer because he prays so much. It says in verse 5, So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. Now you might not see this clearly in the verse, but this is undoubtedly a reference to prayer. And how do I know this? God put it in my heart to do this thing. God put it in my heart to do this thing. Nehemiah was a person of the word and prayer. So Nehemiah could discern when God was putting something in his heart. And if you don't pray, if I don't pray, we'll never know that. We'll never know if God is telling us to stop, talk to this person, tell them, the Jesus, tell them about Jesus Christ. We'll never know, like, I, you know what, I think I really need to call brother so-and-so. We'll never know when we, you know, I need to go down and, and help Heather at the, at the homeless thing tonight. God's putting that on my heart. If you're not close to God, you're not going to be intimate with God. You're not going to hear his voice. You're not going to be directed by him. Paul says in Ephesians, do not be foolish, but understand, know what God's will is for your life. Now that, that you know, verse maybe like rolls off the tongue. We can memorize it easily. But do you understand the profound nature of that verse? It means that you can know what God wants you to do. <laughs> it's incredible that it's not a crapshoot, it's not a guess, that you can know. But this only happens when we spend regular time with God. Can I plead with all of you again, and I plead with my own inner man in this, can we potentially identify the broken down walls in our lives as a lack of prayer? In other words, we just don't pray. We just don't do it. Word-centered prayer. Prayer sometimes just becomes a, I guess, a, um, a relational tip that we give to God every now and then. And we don't really recognize the power that's at our fingertips with prayer. Can we weep with each other and with Nehemiah? Over, that's just a tragic, broken-down wall. Over and over again, the Bible's high view of prayer in our lives and what it does for us spiritually and what it accomplishes in the world, yet often so times even I neglect it so abysmally. Be inspired, friends, to pray. To pray with us on Tuesday. To pray in your prayer closet daily. To not let a day go by where you don't love Jesus in prayer. Pastor Jim Simbla again says, as, as goes Tuesday, so goes Sunday. Now, you might not know that, what, what he means by that, but at Tuesday at his church is a massive prayer service. And what he means by this is that the intentional prayer ministry of God's people fuels the rest of its ministry. In other words, the power for conversion on Sunday the power for transformed lives through the spoken word on Sunday comes through the prayer of his people daily and collectively. Daily, individually, and collectively as we gather to pray. It provides the power. It, it's what juices the lights. 
Now, do we really believe that, friends? That the word, that as we pray the word of God, that not only is our soul healed, but power comes in our ministry. Do we really believe that? That it's the power for joy, for the conversion of your friends and family, for your fullness in Christ, for the prosperity of this church and God's kingdom. Oh, friends, we need to have the conviction of prayer like Brother Nehemiah. But he also had the conviction of obedience, number five. The conviction of obedience. There's some parts of, of, of what remain in this sermon that are at the end of chapter 7. So they weren't in what we read. But at the end of chapter 7, we see this conviction of obedience very clearly. It says in verses 61 and 64, those verses record for us, a concern that some of the families on the genealogy provided could not demonstrate that they were actually from Israel, that they were Israelites, descended from Israel. Also, some of the priests named couldn't demonstrate their ancestry as Levites, uh, which was required to be in the priesthood. And you say, this seems kind of like racist. What's going on here? I don't like the sound of this, right? <clears throat> Later in chapter 13, also, so, so not only is there potentially a priest that's not an Israelite, or Israelites that aren't Israelites, but also the problem in chapter 13 of mixed marriages starts to surface. In other words, Jew, um, faithful Jews marrying pagans who don't understand um, the, the gospel of um, Yahweh. Now it's important to remark here that what's at stake is not really the preservation of a pure race. They are not racists. They're not interested in just being Israelites and no one else is invited. Any pagan Gentile could accept the Jewish faith and convert and become as a Jew. Even in the Old Testament, they could do this. So any pagan, all are welcome, but they are only welcome as a Jew if they are committed to worship Yahweh. They've accepted his word and have trusted in him as their one and only God. So in other words, they would have to turn from their God, the, the, the Baal gods and the Dagon gods and all these different things that they would worship and, and put their trust in Yahweh alone. You see, it didn't matter if they were born a Babylonian or a Hittite or any of these things, but they would, have to, they would have to accept the one true God of Yahweh and they would be considered as a Jew. So this wasn't a racist thing, this was a faith thing. You see, it was important that if they were calling someone an Israelite, that they actually believed in Yahweh. It was important if they were going to marry someone, that that marriage partner actually believed in Yahweh. That the priests actually believed in Yahweh. And isn't it so true that even to this day, sometimes we have non-converted pastors preaching the gospel? And, and how true is it also to, to have people non-converted as members of churches? And it's not to say that non-converted people aren't welcome into our assemblies and into our homes to hear the gospel. But if you are not converted, friend, you are not a Christian. That means that you are not a member of the universal corporate church of Jesus Christ. You can be. You are not excluded because you're a sinner or because of the color of your skin. Simply trust in Christ. And that's it. That is the one requirement of the entrance of the kingdom of God. And honestly, that should be the one requirement of the entrance of any of our churches. So all kinds of people should be welcome into our lives. But we should never give people the... We should never do the disservice to our own community or to the person themselves that they are God's child when they might not be. You see? 
Finally, Nehemiah had the conviction of transparent generosity. This one's fun. Verse 70, this is at the end of, of chapter 7. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 bulls, and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people were 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 garments for the priests. Nehemiah had done it. The people started returning to Jerusalem, and not only just returning to Jerusalem, but being incredibly generous and rebuilding the rest of the city. The homes and the structures and things that were needed to make it work. They started emptying their pockets. Generous giving, says Brown, is the practical expression of every believer's obedience to Jesus Christ. It's just what starts happening. And I don't even mean just to your local church. You start giving generously to them. It means that you start giving generously in general because you start loving people more than your pocketbook. You start loving God and spreading his word and kingdom more than you love your flat screen TV. Scripture calls all believers to sacrifice in lots of different ways, right? And how many people know and have struggled with this in the past as I have? Like, well, you know, I serve a lot. I do ministries. I don't have to give. I do all those other things. (laughs) And that's awesome that we sacrifice in these ways. But none of this alleviates us from the responsibility of living generously to others in need. These returning exiles, by the way, had not even built their homes yet. The city wasn't even built yet. So not only did Nehemiah, because of, uh, because of his principled character and his call to get them to obey the vision of God in his kingdom, get them to return to the city, but they started giving to the work before anything was even there, before they even had their homes secured. So they are giving ex- extremely generously and sacrificially and faithfully. They prioritize the work of the gospel, the proclamation of love for their neighbors above anything else. And as should we. That should be, I think, our first, our first budget item. The kingdom of God and his word and his people spread. But their giving wasn't just extravagant, okay? It was also exemplary. And what I mean by that, I want you to notice something. It says in verse 70, the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold. 1,000 derricks, the governor. Who's the governor? Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the governor. Nehemiah is basically saying, he's not bragging. He's not saying, hey, look how much I'm giving, right? He's basically saying, I am the leader. I have led you all to this, but I'm in it with you. He's saying, I am not expecting you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. He's saying, I'm all in. He knows that it's wrong for a leader to expect from others what he himself refuses to do. And friends, that's just true. Now that doesn't mean, like, you'll also notice he didn't give as much. You know, his isn't the biggest number on the thing. So people weren't on his case about that. Right? But he was in it. He was all in. He wasn't bragging. He's saying, the burden that you carry, the burden that you shoulder is mine too. We're all in this together. 
And these convictions are what drove these people to rebuild Israel with him, to be a healthy, thriving people of God, a community of Christ. The convictions Nehemiah possessed, these are the same convictions that motivated this exodus of new residents to come back to an impoverished and dilapidated city, and it caused them to give sacrificially and generously and exemplarily. But what's more, it's these convictions that what were, is what were necessary to continue the new community in health. Purpose, character, relocation, prayer, obedience, generosity, these convictions are, are necessary for any healthy, thriving community. And friends, we need them too. We need to have purpose. We need to have vision. We need to see what God sees and go after it together. We need to have character in our lives and expect our leaders to have character as well. We need to relocate, inconvenience ourselves, do this and not that for the cause of Christ. We need to pray daily, faithfully. We need, we need to never disregard the word of God, but hold it up and obey it and to be generous. We need to have these chief convictions. And friends, this is going to fuel what we do. It's going to fuel your life as a Christian, but it's going to fuel God's kingdom. These are the kind of people that God uses. Let's pray to be that people. Amen? Join me in prayer. God, I pray, Lord, that we, we would be this kind of vibrant community. That we would have purpose and character. That we would be willing to relocate ourselves to, pr to prayer, to obedience, to be generous, Lord. God, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us people like this in our church. And we thank you, Lord, that if we've fallen short in these areas, that today is a new day and that you are slow to anger, that you're patient with us, that you give us time and you help us and you, you teach us how to develop these things in our lives. So God, I just pray that you would do that. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that for the first time, God might be calling you to be, to be called out of darkness into light. He loves you. He sent his son to die for your sins, that your sin is an offense to a holy God, but that God loves you, and he sent his son to pay for those sins for you. Would you believe in them? Would you turn from them? Would you trust in Christ? Would you see in him everything that you've ever wanted in life? Put faith for by, in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any of you should boast, but in Christ. And if you're doing that right now, in the silence of your own heart, cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am giving you my life. I believe in you. I am yours. Thank you that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. I should have paid for it. But Jesus Christ has offered to pay for, for me in his death and resurrection. You are beautiful to him and lovely to him. Come to him in repentant faith and he will receive you. And if that's you, don't let a moment go by after church without telling another Christian, come tell myself, I'd love to pray with you and for you. So God, we love you and we just thank you so much, Lord, as we transition now into our communion. We thank